Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I like it. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I just watched the remake of TJ Laser. Oh, <laughs> deep cut from RoboCop there. <laughs> Two of them, um, I think. So. Yeah. So uh, not that deep. I mean, it's uh, it's prominent. Both of these sort of uh, in-world TV shows that people are into in this film, which is RoboCop. In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1987, and we're here at our finale to talk about our audience choice pick, as we always do in the finale. And this season, we sometimes we go a little esoteric with these picks and come up with kind of wacky themes, but we went real mainstream straightforward this season, picked three big blockbuster action movies for you to choose from. They were Predator, Lethal Weapon, and the fairly overwhelming winner, which was RoboCop. And I think we were not entirely surprised by that. No, but any of those three uh, would have been a pleasure to cover. I love all three of these movies. Yeah, I, I mean, if you were one of the people who voted for Lethal Weapon, check out our episode on Lethal Weapon 2 from our 1989 season where I think we talked a decent amount about the first Lethal Weapon there as well. So that was my, my thought was like, ah, we kind of went there already. So I'm glad we, we didn't have to retread that. But um, Predator, I love. I would have been happy to talk about. Well, Lethal Weapon, I consider a Christmas movie. So maybe in a future holiday episode, we'll get there. Maybe we will. I know you love uh, those Christmas movies. And every Shane Black movie is a Christmas movie, right? That's his whole deal. Oh, yeah. He likes it! All right, RoboCop (laughs) is what we're talking about here. The uh, second English-language film from the Dutch director Paul Verhoeven, who we've also talked about before. We talked about his film Basic Instinct in our 1992 season. (laughs) <laughs> the years are all that the awesome right. movie years. The, the season I don't remember us actually doing. Yeah, it uh, the Jason's blackout season. That was <laughs> we talked about Basic Instinct. So check that episode out as well. And Lots I, li- I like I like If only it could have been fifty three that I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this was, of course, before that. Really, his first major Hollywood film. Um, his his first English language film called I think it's Flesh and Bone. Uh, was not, you know, as big a hit. I've never seen, but this was the start of his big Hollywood kind of hit making period. Um, it was a box office success. It grossed $53.4 million on its $13.7 million budget and was the, I think, 14th highest grossing film of 1987. So pretty good. Was also nominated for two Oscars for Best Sound and for Best Editing, and it won a Special Achievement Award, which I believe is like a non-competitive award for sound effects editing. And I don't know, those sound categories are always back and forth. At one point, sound effects and sound effects editing were separate competitive categories, but and they're not anymore now, but maybe they weren't then either. Anyway, it won an Oscar. It did win an Oscar, and it's crazy, Josh, this strategy of making a budget-conscious movie that uh, makes money and gives you a franchise based on that, as opposed to spending $300 million on a crappy movie that has diminishing returns. 
Right. I mean, and this is an era when not that there weren't films that were launched with the hope of making a franchise, but I feel like that was less often that this is an era when this movie was made just because it was on cool. Its own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, it and, and then more. because, yeah, because it was a success rather than kind of trying to reverse engineer that. But right. it did become a big old franchise. And, uh, you know, it's got quite a, a strong reputation now. But sometimes with movies like that, you know, I end up looking back and, and see, oh, you know, it was critics hated this or whatever. But this was actually quite critically acclaimed as well. At the time, it got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert, and they were very enthused about it, especially Siskel. But both of them really liked it. And, uh, and it generally got pretty good reviews from critics. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his written review, said, the broad outline of the plot develops along more or less standard thriller lines. But this is not a standard thriller. The director is Paul Verhoeven, the gifted Dutch filmmaker whose earlier credits include Soldier of Orange and The Fourth Man. His movies are not easily categorized. There is comedy in this movie, even slapstick comedy. There is romance. There is a certain amount of philosophy centering on the question, what is a man? And there is pointed social satire, too as the RoboCop takes on some of the attributes and some of the popular following of a Bernard Getz. What, uh, what, where's the romance? What did I miss? Yeah, I, I thought that too. And I think they might've mentioned it in their segment, or it might've been in another of the reviews that I read that people assumed that there was some sort of romance between RoboCop, Alex Murphy, played by Peter Weller, and uh, Nancy Allen's character, his partner. But I thought one of the refreshing things about this movie was that that was not a romance, that she was just a, another cop who was, I mean, she was supportive, she was helping him, but there was no romantic subtext there at all. I agree, but you have to admit there is a missed opportunity with a sex scene and a woman yelling, give me that robo cock. I wow. guarantee that exists somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about maybe RoboCop and uh, Ed 209 oh. having some sort of... Uh, Robot on romance. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, and I mean, what would that be considered? Because we know that, uh, Robocop is, uh, Murphy and Ed 209 doesn't really have any gender. So what would that, how would you even, uh, describe that, Josh? I, I don't know. Ed 209, I've neither Robocop nor Ed 209 seem to have any genitals. I mean, that's one thing poor Murphy has, uh, been denied along with everything else as he's, uh, become this cyborg, you know, he no longer has a, a functioning, I don't know. They talk about briefly his digestive system, but, uh, considering that there doesn't appear to be anything in that area, where does it all go? That like paste that he eats. I don't really want to think about this, but suddenly I am. <laughs> Maybe he could feel it, but not remember it. I yeah, let's let's uh that's what he says about that. his family, Josh. So right, yeah, but not about his uh balance. bodily functions or <laughs> doing the sex. Robo sex. Right. Do you want he some does, robo sex? He does have kind of like romantic memories of his wife. So I mean I guess you could argue that, but I feel like people are trying to, to talk about Nancy Allen's character that way, and that's really not what's going on. And and even the stuff with his wife is all like, you know, more like kind of the sentimental, like, hey, it's my wife and my son dressing up for Halloween, or like, hey, she loves me. So it's not like, you know, she's uh giving him uh, uh the onesie twosie in the bedroom there, Josh. Right. No, it's not. And even even when he 
kind of recovers those memories, he never tries to find the family. Maybe he does in the sequels, which uh, we'll maybe talk about later. But uh, here he just he kind of asks and someone says, oh, she thought you were dead. So she moved away. And, and that's that's it. He doesn't really follow up on that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Also, I'm, I'm still thinking about Robocop and Ed 209 giving each other the old uh, cyborg, uh, you know. Yeah, Ramrod. well, as we see. As we see, Ed, Ed 209 uh, has trouble on its back, so I don't know what kind of position it would be yeah, in. Yeah, hopefully uh, they're not doing it in a stairwell because he'll just fall down. It'll just fall yes. down on you. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, other well, critics really also covered like this, film. this uh, film in the way that it was meant to be covered, I think. So. I feel like Paul Verhoeven would be proud. Oh, yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is the kind of depravity he loves. Yeah, Ro- RoboCop goes into a strip club and where Nomi is dancing or something and is like, <laughs> shake it, baby. <laughs> I mean, it's probably happened in one of the many iterations of RoboCop. So uh, Michael Wilmington in the Los Angeles Times also liked this movie quite a bit. He said, big budget action movies have seemed so boneheaded recently that the cleverness of Paul Verhoeven's Robocop may startle you. Despite a level of lurid violence that may offend many, this movie has a motor humming inside. It's been assembled with ferocious, gleeful expertise, crammed with humor, cynicism, and jolts of energy. In many ways, it's the best action movie of the year. There's no doubt that some of RoboCop is in poor taste, and it's definitely not a film for children. But the excesses are somewhat justified by the modern, nauseating generic cliches it tears up with such flagrancy and gusto. Yeah, so all three of the movies we're talking about, I think, I mean, it's Lethal Weapon more so than Predator, have uh, elements of humor in it, and I think they really work in the context of the film. And that's one of the pleasures of this movie is the satire and the humor in it. And it, it doesn't distract, it adds to the tone. Yeah, I mean, watching it this time, I really appreciated the satirical elements. And I mean, unfortunately, one of the reasons is because they seem very relevant, a lot right. of them right now, which mm-hmm. it would be nice if they weren't. But I mean, I think it's it's a testament to how effectively Verhoeven uh, and the uh, screenwriters were able to put this together, um, Edward Neumeyer and Michael Miner are the writers, that it was relevant and incisive in 1987. And it remains so that they're kind of prescient about what society was, where society was headed, unfortunately. And uh, we, we need some RoboCops to save us right now, Josh. No, I think RoboCops, the point of this movie is we don't need <laughs> RoboCops, right? I think you might have missed that. Well, who's going to protect us from the the bad robots, if not RoboCops? How about no robot cops? <laughs> I mean, you're living that in seems the past, best. bro. <laughs> yeah, sadly, we do have them. Uh, I was, I just, there's a some robot cop in in New York City right now that uh, I keep seeing pictures of it on social media. Josh just went to the Sphere, which opened in Las Vegas, um, and saw the Aronofsky movie. But there are robot like tour guides there. Is that right? Did you interact with the robots there? Yeah, they're not really tour guides. They don't move around. I mean, they just kind of stand in one place and you can talk to them. I didn't. I just kind of watched other people interact with them and um, they answer questions and they try to engage people and you can take pictures with them and stuff. And I mean, it's kind of impressive, but honestly, it was seemed more like promotional. I mean, I went to a special like opening event and so maybe it was more likely that they were just 
telling you about the cool aspects of the sphere, but it really did not, it seemed kind of chintzy to be honest. So there was no slippage like in that clip on like that tech conference, like where it's like, will you protect the humans? Yes, I will kill all the humans. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe, maybe when I was not around, but mostly it was like, here are some facts about the sound system here at the sphere. So uh, it, it seemed harmless. When I worked in uh, digital marketing, I was uh, uh, tasked with writing dialogue for like robot concierges. And this was maybe seven years ago or six years ago. So it was like really cool at the time. Like, oh, this is so cool. And now it's like, oh, I'm, I'm creating my own death spiral, Josh. Mm. Yeah, hopefully not. We haven't we haven't quite gotten to the RoboCop Ed 209 level yet. Uh, and as I've said, I act in BattleBots and no robots have attacked us yet. So. Yeah. See, you're, you're smart. You're, you're supporting and teaming up with the robots uh, so that they'll be on your side. Yeah. Once there are overlords, I could be like, yo, I advocated for you. Does not matter. I do not feel emotion. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. <laughs> So finally, uh, Dave Kerr in the Chicago Tribune was a little more mixed. He said, a high-tech futuristic thriller decked out with stomach-churning violence and odd satirical jibes, Paul Verhoeven's Robocop is a stylish piece of work that leaves a sour aftertaste. The big business satire is probably the most successful element of Robocop, achieving a nice Kubrickian coolness and precision in its portrait of rampant greed and smiling irresponsibility. But the action scenes, which are meant to carry the project, are overscaled, overfamiliar, and overdirected. Verhoeven has perfected a Euroflash style of fancy camera angles, rushing camera movements, and weirdly masked compositions, but he has very little sense of internal rhythm. The last third of the movie, which finds Verhoeven routinely ticking off plot points between extravagant explosions of violence, becomes frankly tedious whatever dingus yeah he's gonna get blown away by ed 209 the action Hell sequences yeah. are awesome they're part of, they're they're maybe the best stuff in the movie what are you talking about dude so yeah know? i agree i mean i think the satire is the best part but i i do think the action is really well done and its excessiveness is part of the point and ties in with the satire the whole idea of the this this decadent ridiculous society and i mean by the end of the movie the, they're fighting with guns that like every time you fire them cause giant explosions i mean it's absurd yeah newmeyer was saying like you know this is like his response to reaganomics you know where it's the rich get richer and everyone else gets screwed so i mean that's what we're that's what we're looking at here and you know the uh the bad guys will do anything to take more money. And uh, those bad guys are often in power, you know, in elected office so um, or in corporate offices. So um, and the elected officials uh, are beholden to those in corporate America. So I don't know. I think this guy just missed it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the action is good as action. I mean, you can watch this movie and just enjoy it on that level. But it also really fits with the satirical elements of the movie, um, you know, in a, in a strong way. And, and I mean, just, you know, there are some really cool action set pieces in all the acts, the first act where they, you know, can you fly? And he throws the dude onto the car. That's great. And the, you know, second act where uh, RoboCop basically lights the, the gasoline on fire and it causes the uh, motorcycle crash, you know, for the, the uh, the guy who yells, I like it. And then uh, in the third <laughs> act, like 
you know, when they're dropping all that crazy metal on top of RoboCop, that's great. I don't know. I don't know. Those are all memorable. Yeah, they they absolutely are. I agree. And like I said, especially the the giant explosion guns, which are so very impractical too. Like if you actually want to shoot somebody or something, those guns are not precise in any way, but they're great to watch. I mean, you might have to shoot an Ed two hundred nine just to get up uh, to the ninety sixth floor of a building, and you you know that's what it takes. Right. Exactly. So, Jason, had you uh, watched this movie before? I have watched it before. I don't remember the first time I watched it. I think I was like one of those like, oh, I should watch this. So it might have been uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I don't know. But not as a kid when it I never watched it as a kid, Uh, Josh. You know, I do remember uh, RoboCop coming out to save Sting at Capital Combat from the Nefarious Four Horsemen. And while RoboCop is, uh, you know, uh, uh, a super cop, you can't beat the horseman. Everybody, Dusty Rhodes could tell you that. This is pro wrestling for people who don't know <laughs> anything about any of the names that Jason has just dropped there. I mean, imagine, uh, imagine that as your storyline, though, right? Like you're, you know, you're trying to create some sense of realism of like these four guys beating up this one guy, and who should save him? But RoboCop. Yeah, oh, I mean, and I think too. We'll <laughs> talk about this later, but this part of the weird watering down of RoboCop where he becomes this sort of like pop culture, uh, you know, mascot or whatever. It's so weird that like this movie led to like, um, you know, all these PG and cartoon spinoffs and toys. It's it's very strange how that happened. It is, but I feel like it was something that happened a lot in the 80s. It happened with Rambo and um, I that's off the top of my head. And I'm sure there are other like ultra violent R-rated movies that had you know, huge box office success that became kid friendly toys and cereals and cartoons and whatever. It was, you know, ridiculous. In a, in a way, it makes sense for Robocop, right? Because he's talking about the excesses and like not worrying about all of the uh, ramifications that come from all those excesses. So, you know, he's eating his own tail, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of a weird meta, even though that's not, I'm sure, what it was meant to be when the movie studios just wanted to make money, but it does turn into that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I loved, I was one of the the kid fans of RoboCop. I definitely loved this. I loved RoboCop 2, I think I probably saw first. I still have a, a VHS tape with RoboCop 2 recorded off of like HBO or Showtime or something like that. Sweet. Um, but I... Definitely saw them both, and I didn't have time to rewatch RoboCop two uh, this week. I I kind of would have been curious to see if that is any good because I kind of doubted it is. But I definitely loved them both, and I probably watched the RoboCop cartoon as well as a kid and had a RoboCop toy and all that. And I've I've seen it periodically since. I think the last time I watched it was when the remake came out in 2014, and at that time I, I feel like I was a little underwhelmed with it, but I don't remember why. And I thoroughly enjoyed it this time. So it's it's something that holds up well, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, you know, the the listeners can't see it, but we're on um, Zoom or uh, Riverside so we can see each other. Dave has made a homemade tinfoil RoboCop costume that he's wearing right now. Really going for it, Dave. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Dave, did you... <laughs> Thanks, uh, Dave. Did... Thanks for selling the bit, Dave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I'll Photoshop you, uh, it later and then I'll just post it. And that, that'll really like, you know, that'll, yeah. <laughs> that'll be convincing. People yeah. will believe it then. Yeah, definitely. Did you watch this as a kid, Dave? 
So uh, I don't know if you remember, but last year on Piecing It Together on our first time watches episode that Josh is always on, uh, this was my number one first time watch of 2022. I had never seen this somehow. I did see RoboCop 2 in the theater. I, I have a good memory of that. I'm sure I watched the cartoon, the video games I liked, but somehow I had never actually seen this movie. And I mean, it would have been an all time favorite if I had seen it back then for sure. Yeah, and I feel like if you were introduced to RoboCop through one of those other kind of sanitized versions, you might not realize how effective this movie is Yeah, and how satirical and dark and violent it also it can be. Exactly. So I, I can see how even if you're familiar with RoboCop as a character or a concept that seeing this movie for the first time would be quite an impressive experience. Yeah, I mean, it shows us that you were a fan as a kid and Dave and I both came to it as adults and we all kind of have similar feelings about it. So, uh, Jason, you want to talk about anything else on the background of this film? I mean, Verhoeven turned the film down twice uh, because he didn't understand the satire from it. And um, it was his wife who read the script and said, hey, dum-dum, get with it. <laughs> now I'm paraphrasing here. But uh, right, that did happen, right. Josh. So um, that's when he agreed to do it. And I think um, he was a very good director. For this. Yeah. And that's interesting that that he would have not grasped the satire at first, because I feel like all of his Hollywood work is noted for those satirical elements and for for kind of adding that or bringing that to these various like blockbustery genres. And that's something that he always does. And, you know, we don't know how fluent he was. Like you said this was his second English language film. So, you know, humor is tough to translate sometimes. That is true. So maybe he kind of picked that up better over time. But I think you're right. He turned out to be the good choice. And if he didn't understand it at first, he certainly got it by the time he made the film, because it comes across really well. The other names that I had read that were up for it, uh, David Cronenberg and Alex Cox, I think both would have been really good fits. Monty Hellman, I'm not as familiar with, Josh. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of an exploitation director and directed Westerns, and I think Tulane Blacktop is probably his most famous film. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, Cronenberg, yes, absolutely, and all. I'm sure he would have played up all the body horror stuff with the cyborg element and that would have been a different kind of movie but also a really good movie probably right and alex cox we know from repo man had a weird kind of futuristic uh out of place city feel anyway so i think it would have been good with him as well yeah although i wonder if he might have taken it in sort of too esoteric a direction and you know lost some of the the popcorny fun of it that we get from verhoven here so definitely the right choice you didn't have popcorn fun during Sid and Nancy? <laughs> Not quite. So we'll come back in a moment and talk more of our general thoughts on RoboCop. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season finale episode of our season on the films of 1987, we're talking about audience choice pick RoboCop. Thank you again to all the people who voted for RoboCop and voted in general, but but especially the people who voted for RoboCop because I wanted to talk about it. <laughs> so thank you for that. And uh, I think we all really like this movie, which is nice. That is nice, Josh. And that's really what RoboCop's about, the touchies and the feelies. 
Mm-hmm. I feel like, again, this is the later versions that like cartoon versions, probably he is about being nice and helping people and probably tells you to like stay in school and don't do drugs and all sorts of stuff like that. And this is why I specifically chose not to watch those because I want this RoboCop and, you know, the um, the kind of dystopian world. Actually, we when we did Dread and I didn't really spark to Dread, this is what I wanted from Dread. Right. right. I mean, and I have to think that this is a huge influence on Dread. And I, I, to me, I think both of them are very good and and have similar elements. Mm-hmm. And the Judge Dread comics, which Probably pre-existed, on this, yeah, yes, yeah, absolutely. I think so. There's that kind of back and forth there. Yeah, I was reading some quotes from Newmeyer, and he was saying like, "What if we could, um, you know, make a robot with feelings?" Or and I think they did a good job of like balancing that line where he doesn't feel anything but he has remnants of feelings and i think they did a really good job of like kind of sprinkling those hints in throughout with robocop trying to remember who murphy was and then like in the first act you know directive four is classified that we don't find out in the third act that you know till the third act that he can't arrest anyone who is from ocp so i think they did a good job of building all these things that like add depth to the character which is tough to do with a quote unquote, you know, typical robot. Right. Yeah, I think so. I to me, the least effective parts of the movie are the sort of sentimental stuff about Murphy recalling his life and the the bits that you were talking about earlier where he remembers his wife and his kid and the nice times they had as a family or whatever. And there's the scene where he goes to their house that they've moved out of and he's wandering from room to room and having those memories. And I wasn't really like emotionally engaged with Murphy as a person. I don't think that stuff was bad. Just, I think compared to the action and the satire, which is so effective, it it, it felt a little less. So I'm going to disagree on two things. One, I like that scene where he goes in because there's a computer monitor realtor which definitely feels like something that could happen any day now. And I like at the end of that scene how he does get emotionally distraught and punches the computer in the face, you know? (laughs) Um, But I think the least effective stuff for me is all the boardroom stuff, right? Like with Dick Jones, who's the bad guy. And like, it's like woven together. But if you really think about it, does any of it make sense? And it's a lot of like, Ma ma ma, we're corporate board people. We use corporate board speak. Ma 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 ma. And there's like not really any content to it. Ex- I mean, it advances the plot, but it doesn't really have any uh, kind of depth to it. I don't think. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't. You know, I, I don't. I don't disagree that it lacks depth, but I think that's part of the yeah. effective satire. That that is that stuff is so fun to watch. I mean, the scene in the boardroom where Ed 209 just like blows away this random executive that has been drafted to demonstrate the, uh, you know, capabilities of this robot where it completely fails and it doesn't realize that he's dropped this gun and it just shoots him in like this incredibly graphic scene where he's just being pummeled with bullets. It's hilarious. That's a good scene. I like that scene. I think it's the scenes afterwards until the last scene where we get uh, the reveal of dick jones we know he's a bad guy but then the rest of the board knows him and then um you know because robocop can't take down anyone who's from ocp the uh, the old man firing him and giving him the chance to shoot him out of the window is great and 
we were talking, uh, you know, in between segments about Johnson, one of the boardroom members. And uh, I love that, like, he stands up with glee to watch uh, Dick Jones fall out of the window. Yeah, he's great. Felton Perry is the name of that actor. And he's he's kind of the the sycophantic best friend of Miguel Ferrer's character, who's the very ambitious younger executive who's trying to kind of topple Dick Jones, played by Ronnie Cox. And and Miguel Ferrer, he's the one who comes up with the Robocop uh program. It's Ed 209 is Dick Jones's big program. And when it it flops because it kills that executive, he swoops in with Robocop. And and he's great as this this really like sniveling, ambitious, slimy executive. And and Ronnie Cox is great also as Dick Jones. I feel like that's a big part of why I enjoy those scenes because those actors are so good. And then you've got Johnson there as the the kind of toady who's sucking up to his his friend Miguel Ferrer and the yeah it's he he takes such glee in watching that one guy get blown away by Ed 209 and then in the end scene when you mentioned where the old man tells Dick Jones that he's fired and and RoboCop blows him away you see him giving like a thumbs up or something yeah. like oh boy I'm going to get promoted now it's great it's a great little performance I think I applauded at the thumbs up, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, actor who I think uh, steals every scene he's in is Kurtwood Smith, who plays Hell the yeah. lead bad guy. And um, most people just know him from that 70s and now that 90s show. But um, I watched uh, the show on Amazon a few years ago. There's only two seasons called Patriot that I think would fit into a cult classic if we ever did a TV season, right? And um, that show is awesome. And he plays like this kind of corporate boss who's very by the book and he's great in that he's great in this i think because we know him as like this big sitcom actor like he's underrated at his abilities to do so many other things right yeah i mean people always think of him as that kind of crotchety dad who has a heart of gold or whatever and he's very good at that and has done it on so many seasons between those two versions of that show but yeah he's very good at being evil and i think it's great too that the like badass villain of this is this kind of balding middle-aged guy with these glasses and yeah. everybody's just afraid of him and he doesn't take shit from anybody and right until like the final moments of his life he's just defiant and like fuck you and it's great he's a is a great performer it is strange like he's dressed like he owns like a loft in soho or something like he's gonna have his own art exhibitions open in his apartment but um I, I do think he's an effective villain. I mean, the rest of his gang are all like kind of big, boisterous caricatures, but like it works because he holds everything together. Right. Yeah, it does. And I guess uh, I saw somewhere, I can't remember where, that supposedly those glasses were specifically chosen by Paul Verhoeven because they look like Himmler. So, oh, wow. um, Ooh, yeah. Nice. Uh, you know, and and I think that makes, you know, that fits those kind of Nazi leaders who were basically like bureaucrats, but were. Uh, you know, orchestrating horrific crimes, and and that's that's sort of the the parallel we're being drawn here. Although he's more than just a bureaucrat, Dick Jones is the bureaucrat right. who's orchestrating terrible crimes. But but Boddicker, Kurtwood Smith's character, is right there in it, committing those crimes. Yeah, and it seems like he likes to. He does. He loves his work, which yeah. is nice to see. When you love your a job, you never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. So true. And Clarence Boddicker has really figured that out. <laughs> Murder. Murder. <laughs> yeah, it's his favorite thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, going back to, I think, 
the the range of villainy too, right? So we have him and his whole gang, and they're they love murder. And then you've got Dick Jones, and you've got Miguel Ferrer's character, and they have their great rivalry as the corporate villains. I mean, there's I feel like I love that scene in the in the the like executive washroom or whatever it is where they have this confrontation and right before they do there's some random other guy who's like oh shit i better get out of here and you see his like himself yeah right exactly or he doesn't pee himself what's great is like he's peeing in the urinal and he obviously just stops before he's finished yeah. and that's why like it's just a small detail that's so perfect so um the, the miguel ferrer character you know is he a villain is he not a villain you know he he's see- a villain how could he not be a villain I don't, I think you could, I mean, other than cutting off Peter Weller's arm to create a RoboCop, he doesn't really do too many villainous things. I mean, I guess you could argue that RoboCop as a program is less villainous than Ed 209, where Dick Jones does at one point express that he doesn't really care that Ed 209 malfunctions and just kills people randomly, whereas Miguel Ferrer is trying to create a robot cop that won't kill people randomly but i feel like that's a very low bar no he's gonna wipe out crime in detroit of all places within 40 days man well he says that but is he really does he really care about that i mean he really just wants to do whatever is necessary for himself to climb the corporate ladder i i think both of those things can be true yeah i i don't see how he's not a villain. I mean, in the way he treats all the cops, and he doesn't really care about solving crime. He just cares about RoboCop being flashy and on TV and and getting his name out there. Well, I don't know, Josh. These are different interpretations that uh, we have on uh, our yuppie brethren here. It, I guess it's, so, it's, it's kind of yeah. like calling Elon Musk a good guy because he's trying to get electric cars out there. I don't want to compare Dave. So far today, you've uh, when Josh mentioned Himmler, you've you went nice, and now you're bringing Elon Musk into this comparison. I mean, I think Elon Musk though is a valid comparison here. I mean, and and going back to like things that this this movie predicted. I mean, the whole deal with OCP that they talk about is how they've privatized various industries that previously were seen only as public. One of which is space travel. So absolutely. Elon Musk is the equivalent of like the old man or whatever, the head of OCP or something like that. I mean, I think that idea of these technology companies moving into areas that were previously sort of a public uh, works is absolutely something that we're ha- seeing with Elon Musk. So you're, you're thinking the next move for Miguel Ferrer's character is to run some privatized prisons with all uh, patrol guards as robocops, robo robo uh, for, uh, patrol guards. I'm pretty sure prisons is another thing that they show on that screen when, when OCP is talking about the industries that they've privatized. So yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think of the predictions, the one, and it's, it's more subtle and there are some subtleties and uh, there is every time they cut to the news, um, there's always some type of natural disaster going on or terrible apocalyptic event going on. And it's just like, you know, today in Santa Barbara, 110 people died because of wildfires. Now over to you, Lisa Gibbons, right? You know, and yeah. it's just like an everyday occurrence, which is what we live through now. Yeah, that's so true. And they talk about like fighting at the border between the military, the US military and like Mexican cartels and, you know, the, the things like that that we're seemingly on the verge of or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 terrible. 
obviously, but it's also seems only tiny bit removed from the reality that we currently live. And the one I brought up, I think, was uh, was due to uh, the fire started because of a peace laser, you know, or yeah. something. And yeah. like the idea of man-made natural disasters, like we have that now all the time in our lives, sadly. Yes, yeah, we do. So they really get that, and the 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 inane TV stuff. I do love the guy who says his catchphrase, "I'd buy that for a dollar." And I, what I love, especially about that, is that what the hell does that mean? <laughs> Nobody knows. It's the but it's just hilarious. It feels like uh, something you would see on Telemundo on Sabado Gigante Internacional or something, you know. So, um, but I liked a lot of those, um, you know, TV clips, the ads, um, Nukem. I think Nukem was my favorite, the, yeah. the nuclear proliferation board game where you can just nuke your opponents like, hey, this is a fun kids game. <laughs> right. It's kind of like Battleship-esque or a little like Risk or something. And I feel like that's also the kind of thing I would totally believe was real at this point. Um, and the car that everyone wants, the is SUX, the, six, yeah. the SUX, yeah, which is, I mean, is not subtle. And like the first time they mention it, is in the scene with the the like hostage negotiation where the member of city council has taken speaking of things that we now deal with is uh unwilling to accept the results of the election mm. where he was not uh reelected and has taken people hostage and he's making all his demands and he says he wants this fancy car and they say oh how about the the SUX and I thought oh that's funny as a throwaway line that they're saying the car sucks but then they say it like a bunch more times and they have a whole commercial so it's not subtle but it's still amusing yeah I didn't love that scene where the elected official takes them hostage because he he really came off as dumb after he came, took him as hostage like the negotiator's like how about uh this car and it's like couldn't get airbags in it and it's like come on man you know you know what you're in for but I do like the way Robocop pulls him through the wall uh to yeah. end that uh, also, kudos to Dave right now, because after his Himmler and Elon Musk mentions, he didn't just jump in and say, no, the election was stolen. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad we don't have that perspective here. But also, I'm not on the Jason, side I, of I, these I feel... people. I'm just <laughs> recognizing these. Yeah. <laughs> Give, make Dave into some sort of uh, Nazi fan. Right, like, That's not what we're man, trying to do. I, I, I think, Josh, I was wrong. He's not wearing a tinfoil RoboCop out. It's just his tinfoil hat that he uses for his conspiracy theorist podcast. Mm. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> yeah, but I, Jason, I think you're 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 really giving too much credit to our elected officials by saying that this guy you didn't believe it that he would be dumb. I mean, <laughs> uh, that's fair, Josh. That's I I think that's fair. One of the other little ones that I really liked was in the news report when they were like today at Lee Iacocca Elementary School and. You know, that's a reference that's I don't think a lot of people today who weren't alive back then would get. But, you know, he was he ran GM, if I'm not mistaken. Right. General Motors or he was a huge corporate raider and blah, blah, blah. And the fact that that we're naming elementary schools after him would be the equivalent of, uh, you know, as they would say, an Elon Musk elementary school. Right. Absolutely. And I think he I don't know if it was GM or maybe it was Ford, but he right. definitely ran. Maybe, one of those maybe big- it was Ford. Yeah, but one of those big car companies, and of course, this taking place in Detroit, that makes sense. But yeah, there's also, at one point, I think the like Walter Mondale Medical Center, which was another one, you know, a famously like failed political candidate is has now gotten this this place named after him. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of amusing little details in there. Um, 
can we talk about the guy who randomly gets covered in toxic waste? Like what? that's my so guy. That's weird ass things. That's my film. guy. That's my, I like it guy. When he pulls the gun out, he's the underling of the, of uh Kurtwood Smith, the Boddicker. And he is the guy that gets blown up in the motorcycle crash and survives. And he's just kind of a douche. Right. And then, so in the end, he rams his truck into toxic waste and becomes like kind of this, uh, a mutation of himself and when he's yelling help me and it's great because Kurtwood Smith like spins out of control and drives his car into him and the guy doesn't like uh he separates I guess would be the way to say it like the he car- just kind of like disintegrates right yeah into this like pile of goo yeah it's really fun it's a fun way it is it just feels like something out of a different movie like and i love it he just you know we're at this mill where as you were talking about earlier like they drop all the metal on robocop at one point and there's all these steel beams and stuff and he's driving his car and then there's just random vat and it says toxic waste on it it's like you know in repo man where everything says food beer or whatever this is just the generic toxic waste and suddenly he's covered in this where did it come from why is it there who knows? And he's like a mutant out of you know, like a David Cronenberg movie, for example, or something. And it's amusing, but it just feels so absurdly random. I like that part, Josh. I and I, I got to say, if we're going to bring up uh, things like that, we got to uh, do our our duty here on Awesome Movie Year and mention that uh, back when he was Murphy, before he died, he did lose a hand, which is a recurring theme here on Awesome <laughs> Movie Year. <laughs> Yeah, especially this season, right? Is this the third movie just from this season about people losing hands? I think it is, yeah, because of Evil Dead 2 and Moonstruck. So I don't know, something subconsciously going on with us here about- What is the symbolism that we're missing? Right, I don't know. But yeah, you're right. And then of course, as you mentioned, they uh, initially, the, the sort of science team or whatever putting together RoboCop tells Miguel Ferrer, oh, we saved- his other arm and Miguel Ferrer is like, nah, we don't want that. We need a robot arm. Cut it off. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's more effective with the robot arm. You got to give him that. So true. I mean, look, when he was Murphy, what did he do? He got into a car crash and then he got shot to death by a bunch of bad guys. When he was RoboCop, he handled business, man. He sure did. He sure did. And I mean, that's another sequence that I really like when you see all of the the technicians and scientists or whatever from RoboCop's perspective. And it gives you that passage of time where he's kind of turned off and turned on and you see them having a party and whatever. And it just shows you not only gives a good way to show the passage of time, but also the way that they dehumanize him and they view him as like just like a lampshade or something sitting there in their office. And that kind of, I think, is really reflected in the sequence where Dick Jones calls the cops and he's like, we got a problem here. And all the cops turn on RoboCop and just shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. Other than, you know, there's a few cops. He's one of us. And, you know, uh, Nancy Allen's character, like, you know, helps him flee to safety. But, yeah, they just see him as a commodity. Right. Yeah. Even his his quote unquote fellow cops and and no one necessarily sees him as Murphy except for. Nancy Allen, she's really the only one who, you know, recognizes that there's some humanity left there in RoboCop. Right. Because of his TJ Laser gun move there. Right. His little thing. TJ Laser, another TV show background detail that supposedly Murphy's son was a big fan of that and wanted him to twirl his gun in the same manner as TJ Laser. Another, just another like nice little detail. And it's a good way for 
Nancy Allen's character to put it together, this is Murphy. And I, I mean, with that, I do think the one other thing I wanted to mention is in Act Three, where RoboCop kind of removes his helmet and we get like the face of uh, Murphy and he looks in the shard of glass that kind of, uh, or the broken mirror that shows who he is and is like, is he, isn't he, what is he, what is he not? And um, I thought that was really cool because it added a little more humanity to the third act. Right. I mean, and I think they are asking that question where even though she says, it's Murphy. He's like, well, I don't know. Am I like, I have these memories, but like you said, I, I, whatever he says, I feel them, but I don't, or I remember, remember them, them, but I don't feel them or something like that. Right. Even he's not sure how much Murphy he really is. I think it's, I feel them, but I don't remember them. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, either way, the point being that there's a disconnect there between the RoboCop version of him and the and the human version of him. It's not just that he has No, to- but you're right because we see that when he like goes into the server room and like gets all the information on who he was, who the criminals were who killed him and he has to um, kind of keep putting little scraps of his life together to figure out who he used to be. Yeah, and uh this is not necessarily about that, but speaking of the server room, another little detail that I love is that the tool that RoboCop uses to connect to computers is this like giant blade that he also jams in someone's ear at one point? <laughs> like what a multi-purpose tool that is. I mean, that's how he kills Kurtwood Smith at the end with uh, stabbing him with that in the neck. Right, there you go. Yeah, it was him. Ed. But, but you know, the fact that like, who built computers where they decided, no, we don't like these USB things anymore. What about a razor sharp knife? How about that for our computer interfaces? Let's let's put that on your iPhone. Josh, the other names that were bandied about to play RoboCop, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think we all think too big of a star at this point in time. It would have taken away from the character. And he's already done something like this with, uh, you know, the Terminator. So I don't think that would have been good. But I think all of these other names could have pulled it off, which were Michael Ironside, Rutger Hauer, Tom Berenger. Those would probably be the top three. And then Armand Asante, Keith Carradine, and James Remar. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Peter Weller is good in this, but I think a lot of the performance of RoboCop is just being able to speak in a monotone and those guys could definitely do that. Well, I mean, I was reading on the background, like he worked with this like famous mime for months to like create a walk for RoboCop. And then when he actually had to get into the RoboCop suit, um, it was way more kind of clunky than he thought. So uh, it kind of changed everything. They said he was losing up to three pounds of uh, body weight a day from all the sweat he was uh, emitting from his body while in that suit. So, um, but uh, Rob Botton, you know, special effects legend was kind of in charge of that and the costume and the practical effects, which again, we all know we love practical effects on the show. Yeah. And I feel like they look great. You know, sometimes you can watch movies like this and think, oh, this is dated. And I mean, it's dated in the sense that you can tell it's practical or that it's stop motion or whatever, but it looks really good. And it doesn't, it doesn't ever take you out of the world of the movie to me, at least. I uh, found this quote from Paul Verhoeven on why he chose Peter Weller above these other actors. His chin was very good. Well, he does have like a chin showcase. I feel like, (laughs) you know, that's, that's what you see a lot of him. Like, like if you play Batman, right, you need to have a good chin in order to play Batman. So, um, that was a smart choice on uh, from Paul Verhoeven. Hey, Josh, before we uh, rate this thing, I did have one other uh, 
factoid that I think um, sums up this interaction between corporate and uh, Main Street and, and uh, Wall Street, so to speak, and the kind of mix of uh, corporate overlords and what's good and what's bad. For one of the promotions uh, for RoboCop, they had a RoboCop costume actor shake hands with Richard Nixon. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Richard Nixon, I feel like he's like, he's the real life, you know, Dick Jones. Or yeah, I think like that. that. I think that's right. Yeah. So uh, should we rate this out of five uh, guys who dissolve into goo? Um, five goo guys? Okay, that's Five fine. goo guys, yeah. Uh, um, not good guys, but goo guys. Uh, it, gets right. th- it gets three and a half from me. But um, I got to tell you, like I watched it last week and I kind of watched it again this week just to like be ready for the preparation. It's like such an easy movie to watch. Like I could watch it again next month. Yeah, it's definitely a fun watch. I give it three and a half as well. I, I really do enjoy it though. And it has that kind of nostalgic feel because I liked it as a kid so much and just RoboCop is a character, but it's it's very fun to watch and it certainly holds up. So Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going five. It's all the way. Wow. It's amazing. And I think part of Dave's rating is how cool the score is. Like, it's really epic. It reminds me of the NFL Films Presents music when, like, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, teams are going on these, like, big-time game-winning drives. And what perfect music to have for, like, when you're, you know, rah, 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 America, right. here we go. You know? exactly. Right. I feel like if RoboCop showed up at pro wrestling, there's a not insignificant chance that he could have showed up at an NFL game at some point in the 80s, right? Sure. I, I think that would be accurate. I'm just trying to think of like, because Ric Flair is known, you know, for like uh, low blowing guys, like punching dudes in the nuts from time to time. And as as you established, Josh, I wouldn't be effective against RoboCop. So I think they would have they had established to have- it in the film. That they, somebody <laughs> right. kicks him in the nuts and it does not work. Right. There are no I, nuts. Yeah. So I think they would have to remove his helmet and maybe uh, uh, spit green mist in his eyes to uh, incapacitate him or something. Hmm. I look forward to Jason's wrestling match against Robocop, for which he is effectively <laughs> strategized here. <laughs> if Capital Combat ever comes back, I'm ready for it. So. Yeah. Well, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Robocop. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this finale of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about audience choice pick RoboCop. And we've gone through some of the legacy here, the idea that because this movie was such a huge hit, it became this massive franchise that ultimately got like watered down into this kid-friendly version. There were two different cartoon series over time. Uh, two different live action TV series, one of which I think the second one was more geared toward an adult audience and maybe captured some of that dystopian feel. But the first one was more for kids and teenagers. Um, the movie sequels, I, RoboCop 2, I mean, I haven't seen in a long time, but I'm pretty sure was just as violent as this. But I think I RoboCop. Don't think so. No, I think it was at least still an R rated film. If I remember correctly, the only thing I remember from it is a brain getting squished. So that's I mean, that violent. sounds pretty graphic. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you're right. It is rated R, Josh. So, um, so maybe by RoboCop two, they were like, "Hey, we uh, we've caught on with kids, so let's uh, let's really kind of blow this out into a more family friendly fair," which defeats the entire purpose. 
Right, absolutely. And it may be that RoboCop 2 was like, here's the version for adults and the kids have the cartoon, but we still have this violent film. But I know RoboCop 3, which I've never seen, did knock it down, I think, to a PG-13. And Peter Weller had left. He was in the second one, but wasn't in the third one. And of course, wasn't in any of the TV versions um, either. So yeah, it really got watered down. And um, there were RoboCop comic books. And I'm pretty sure there are RoboCop, you know, versus various other comic yeah. book characters. Versus over time. Terminator or whatever it is. Yeah, it yeah. actually is. Yeah, Josh, uh, Dark Horse released a miniseries, uh, RoboCop versus the Terminator. Right, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of those crossovers in the, in comics with the various film characters. And Dave, you mentioned the video games. You played the RoboCop video game. Oh, yeah, the original RoboCop game. And then uh, RoboCop versus Terminator was awesome. And actually, right now when we're recording this, like two weeks ago, a new RoboCop game came out that a lot of people are saying is like the best piece of robocop since the first movie like it's supposed to be amazing wow mm. and that's i mean i think impressive that they're, they're still making various versions of robocop i mean there was the the remake um that i mentioned from 2014 which didn't i don't think did very well at the box office i mean it was never followed up with sequels or anything like that but i guess there's there's word now that they may remake it again or there may be a new robocop tv series i mean it's a property that's still being exploited RoboCop returns a direct sequel to RoboCop that ignores the series. Other films is in development. It's directed, said to be directed by Abe Forsyth, who I don't know much about, and is he is rewriting a script by uh, Newmeyer, Miner, and Justin Rhodes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these projects, who knows if they'll actually come about? But the fact that there's just various things being developed around RoboCop, you know, shows how big of a pop culture impact it's had. Newmeyer had this quote on Detroit in 2013. We are now living in the world that I was proposing in RoboCop, how big corporations will take care of us and how they won't. So that was 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's only gotten so much better, really. Mm. <laughs> Josh, uh, we've mentioned, of course, uh, Verhoeven. He and Newmeyer have a, um, uh, a new project called Young Sinner, a young staffer in Washington, D.C., working for a powerful senator, is drawn into a web of international intrigue and danger. And I imagine there's a lot of sex in there. Yeah, that is supposed to be an erotic thriller. And it was announced like two years ago. So again, who knows if these things are going to happen. But Verhoeven has definitely, after, you know, he had this big Hollywood period, and then he had these kind of flops that were maybe misunderstood, like Showgirls and Starship Troopers that have come to be appreciated now. But he was sort of drummed out of Hollywood and really has been reappreciated a lot lately with his European films that he's made in recent years. So, yeah, you know, he'll have the chance, I think, to work in a bigger sort of canvas or whatever if he gets that movie off the ground. I think he's happy, you know, working in Europe and uh, Neumeier kind of, you know, between this movie and Starship Troopers, which has tons of sequels that I had no idea about, you know, is living off the fat of those two forever, I think. Right. Yeah. Starship Troopers has a bunch of like direct to video sequels, I think. And um, he's involved yeah, I mean, in certainly, all of them, I'm pretty sure. Oh, is he? Well, that's good because I was going to say, I mean, with Robocop, I'm sure he gets money from every iteration of it because it's a character that he co created. Whereas Starship Troopers is based on a, a novel, source material. So I imagine that the uh, you know compensation for different versions of it is less for that screenwriter. But if he's actually involved in, in creating those films, then yeah, I'm sure he's doing pretty well. 
lots of uh, big time character actors we've mentioned. Uh, Ronnie Cox, I always remember from Deliverance and one of the craziest spoiler alert death scenes that I've ever seen on film. And uh, he turns down 90% of the acting jobs he's offered to this day because he's a touring uh, musician with like over 100 festival gigs a year. Yeah, that's crazy. I guess he's like a folk singer. I should have uh, looked up some Ronnie Cox music, but I yeah. did not do that. Yeah, I mean, this whole cast, I think even even the main stars, they their their careers are all really oriented in that kind of character actor area. You know, even Peter Weller, I who I always think of, you know, speaking of David Cronenberg, he's great as the star of Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. And he's worked as a TV director, uh, won an Oscar for directing a short film and has a PhD in Italian Renaissance art history. Mm. I bet uh, he knows more than I do on that subject. I mean, yeah, clearly. <laughs> Nancy Allen used to be married to Brian De Palma, who would have also been an interesting choice to direct this film. And yeah. um, we'll see. I mean, I know she's kind of dabbling again, but Carrie, 1941, Dressed to Kill, which I think she got a Golden Globe nom for, and also a Razzie nom for, So, and Blowout are kind of some of her bigger films. Yeah, she worked obviously with De Palma on a bunch of films and basically retired back in 2008 um, to work as an activist for uh, cancer causes, which is, you know, that's an admirable reason to uh, switch careers. Yeah, she was helping her friend who ended up dying of cancer. So it's nice that she's there to help uh, carry on that legacy. Yeah, we talked about Kurtwood Smith. Uh, are there any other roles? I mean, he's incredibly prolific. Are there any other roles of his that you love? Um, Patriot is the one that stands out to me. How about you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know he was on a season of 24, which, of course, I was like, oh, yeah, I watched 24 a lot of seasons, but I don't know if I remember his. I might have stopped by that point. I think Peter but... Weller was on a season of 24 also. That is possible, too. Yeah, he's done a lot of TV work as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know if there's any other Kurtwood Smith stuff that stands out to me, but I feel like there's probably a bunch of things that I've seen him in and just, uh, you know, he's, he's one of those guys who's just always there. And, uh, speaking of guys like that, who have worked together on other things, both, uh, Daniel O'Hurley, who played the old man, the boss and, uh, Ray Wise, who was one of the, uh, kind of goons in this were both in, uh, Twin Peaks. Ray Wise was Leland Palmer and, uh, Daniel O'Hurley based this old man character on Lou Wasserman, the famed studio mogul, and had an Oscar nom for Louis Boonwell's Robinson Caruso. Oh, wow. Boonwell, another director we've covered here on. And he was in Failsafe, which was a Lumet movie, who was also, also covered. So many connections. Uh, Miguel Ferrer, of course, was also on Twin Peaks, um, was a major part of that, as well as the Twin Peaks revival from 2017, which he did right before he passed away that year and uh, a great, also very prolific character actor and really good at playing those kind of slimy characters like he does in this film. I, I always remember him from Traffic. Yeah. Another, another great film. Also Hot Shots Part Due. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's a classic as well. Um, we, uh, we, were, we were talking online before the episode about uh, RoboDoc the five-hour documentary about the making of RoboCop. You got to love when the, the documentary about the making of the movie is like three times as long as the movie itself. Well, maybe they're considering the sequels. <laughs> I think they're not. That's the thing. It's just about this film. And there, just recently, there was a clip from it that went kind of viral on social media that is just... Uh, some some i don't even know some some crew member talking about 
Peter Weller in the RoboCop suit wanting to eat Oreos. And they have like animated reenactments of Peter Weller and this crew member and the Oreos. And the amount of detail that goes into this really ridiculous little anecdote makes me think that this must be the most detail-oriented, like obsessive documentary about the making of any movie ever. Well, part of that is because it's um, the story is that Peter Weller says, Robo wants Oreos. And he's like, hey, bro, it's just me and you. Call yourself Peter. And he refuses to acknowledge that he's <laughs> Peter Weller. So the guy just eats all the Oreos in, in his face. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's great. And, but I, I feel like, you know, we like this movie, but there are definitely people who are that obsessive as fans of this film who will eat up uh, Oreos uh, like they will eat up this five-hour documentary about RoboCop. And uh, perhaps there are giant fans of Lisa Gibbons, who was very famous at the time between Entertainment Tonight and her daytime talk show afterwards. She was, and and good for her for being willing to kind of make fun of that whole uh, sort of cheesy news anchor persona by appearing in this film, because she's not playing a like, sympathetic character in any way. She's fun. They're all fun. And- yeah. She is. So uh, anything else you want to mention about the legacy of this film, Jason? I mean, I just wanted to shout out the Robert Ducroix, who plays the chief. I'm probably pronouncing his um, name wrong, but he's one of those like angry police chiefs that you might find stereotypical now. But I mean, he was in Nashville, which we've, uh, you know, which there might be an episode released on that soon. Hint, hint. Bonus episode. Coffee. And he was one of the voices in the Harlem Globetrotters cartoon, Josh. Last, I wanted to say the, uh, the costume took six months to build. Wow. Yeah. And, and we should shout out, you mentioned Rob Botton, but also Phil Tippett, another major special effects pioneer who worked on that stop motion for Ed 209 and, you know, made that crazy spent, I was probably working at the time of this or soon afterwards on Mad God, which was his like third wild. year in the making stop motion film. Yeah. That movie is wild, stuff. bro. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. indeed. But you can see, I feel like you can look at the Ed 209 scenes and, and see the connection there to Mad God. Hey, Josh, I know you'll want me to bring this up because I mentioned the Capital Combat in 1990. It is now 2023 and Sting, who RoboCop rescued, is on his retirement tour. So he's still going at it all these years later. That is Sting the wrestler, not Sting the singer. He'll never retire. He plays too much (laughs) new age music. So if Sting the wrestler is still wrestling, then that, that brings up the idea that maybe RoboCop could also return to the wrestling ring. We can only hope. We can only hope. Yeah. So that's RoboCop, and that is this episode uh, and this season of Awesome Movie Year. That's right. Bitches uh, leave. (laughs) (laughs) That is such a. That's. I can't believe we forgot to mention that. So many classic lines in this film. We got a Kurt Kurt Wood Smith. Such a great delivery of that line. Uh, Give us, give us your best uh, bitches leave on uh, online and on social media or or at awesomemovieyear.com. Awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Dave's buddy Elon Musk still has us on X at Awesome Movie Pod. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the things, and more importantly, just follow me on Letterboxd for Jason. You can find some old stuff from me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at, also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on X and Blue Sky if you're on there and on Letterboxd. And if you're on Letterboxd and you watch a film that we talk about, tag your reviews with Awesome Movie Year so we can follow them, like them, comment on them, 
stalk you and uh, you can check out uh, our reviews or at least mine because I'm doing this. <laughs> Put awesome movie year as your tag on Letterboxd <laughs> and listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where a lot of these votes for this episode came from. Yes. Thank you again to all the members of that group for voting. Don't forget um, to follow Dave uh, on his YouTube show, Take there the Blue go. Pill. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the red pill that yeah. those people take, I'm yeah. pretty sure. I, so see, Dave, I, don't, Dave, I don't watch Dave's, Dave, Dave's YouTube, YouTube show. Is, that, that would be the anti-conspiracy yeah. show, right? Red Taking pill. the blue pill. Yeah. Dave's red pill. I got yeah. that. Jason, hey, thanks what's for in our fixing next? that, Josh. By the way, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to defend you in a in a weird roundabout way. Yeah, right. uh, uh, what what's in our next episode, Josh? This has been a, a you know a very prodigious season. We've talked about a lot of great films, and we had to leave some out because we can't just talk about 1987 forever. But we will talk about it one more time on our epilogue. Jason's got quite the face as he says this. <laughs> Tune in next time for our 1987 epilogue. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.